You're listening to The Naked Pravda. This is Medusa's first and only English language podcast, so please don't be shy about recommending us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. I'm recording this on Friday, July 31st, 2020, and I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. Today's show will appeal, I hope, to a broader audience than usual, because we'll be talking about not just Russia, but also its vastly more powerful neighbor, China. Earlier this week, Medusa published a story by our investigative editor, Alexei Kovalyov, about the media relationship between Moscow and Beijing. Media, though, is perhaps too kind a word, given what's really at stake here is propaganda. And that at least appears to be why China's messaging efforts are failing so badly in Russia. And it's also important to note that Russia has struggled to get much reciprocity in its partnership with China, which has been reluctant even to publish translations of articles written by Vladimir Putin himself. Okay, so it partly comes uh, from my experience as a senior editor at Tria Novosti. Back in 2012, when they were uh, still in the uh, in the very early phase of considering this uh, partnership with some Chinese media, actually, I sort of came up with this crazy idea that uh, maybe we should expand into the Chinese market and uh, make inasmi.ru the translation website aimed at the uh, at the Chinese audience, which is massive. So you're, are you to blame for, for this partnership? No, actually, no, I, hopefully not. That's Medusa's investigative editor, Alexei Kovalyov, who wrote the report about the Russian-Chinese state media partnership that I mentioned at the beginning of the show. He told me that he's been aware of the Russian state media's cooperation efforts with China since before they even materialized, when he used to work for the state news agency, Ria Novosti. One other thing is that, like most of my stories about media and propaganda, they all tend to stem from one little detail that my eye caught. In this case, it was that piece in Rosyskaya Gazeta, which is the uh, Russian government's paper of, of record. And I noticed that they, and they announced every once in a while, that they would run a story on China that would uh, stick out even by, the, even by the standards of propaganda. <laughs> because the language was so so stilted and wooden and obviously not not written by uh, a native Russian speaker that it would really stick out. <laughs> Basically, everyone I talked to on the inside, and most of them refused to be quoted in, in, in the story in any form, because I kind of called uh, my old friends at the agency and uh, asked them about this. And they and they all were like, oh, yeah, we're so tired of vomiting up the, bull, the, the BS for the Chinese. But then the next day when I called them to actually uh, uh, get an uh, anonymous comment, they all bailed. <laughs> because after doing that, I, I've, I sent a formal request for comments, never answered. But uh, all of them said, OK, so our bosses found out that you're writing this story and they all called us and told us to not talks to you. <laughs> so there's there's that level of control at at Russian state media outlets that or that controls maybe the wrong word but there's like that kind of like sensitivity to these stories that w when the editors get w wind of something like this in the pipeline somewhere else they'll notify their staff and say shut up about this please. Well obviously I didn't realize it was uh, it was such a sensitive subject for them but uh, but they were so so tight-lipped uh, everyone was so so tight-lipped 
uh, <laughs> about this. I <laughs> yeah, no, I I didn't realize that it, uh, that it was such a sore spot for them. Uh, China's economy is uh, many times that of Russia's, and of course the partnerships is not equal, and it's the Chinese setting all the terms, which would be a, a very embarrassing thing to admit for uh, Russian foreign policy big heads. But yeah, that's <laughs> that's one of my angles ended up, and it's all connected. Because Russia is not the number one priority for uh, Chinese foreign policy, it doesn't invest in, in, as much in in uh, propaganda aimed at Russians, and uh, because of that, well, the quality is uh, underwhelming compared to the English language content of the, of the same Chinese media group. But the funny thing is that the same insiders now told me that after my article came out, the Russian language bureaus of, of Chinese propaganda are now using it as an argument to uh, get more funding. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've done your part then. <laughs> Everything has to be analyzed as some kind of a dark influence, you know, illicit operation to co-opt or coerce people into something. That's Maria Repnikova, an expert in Chinese media politics and an assistant professor in global communication at Georgia State University. She cautions against viewing Chinese foreign broadcasting efforts as something inherently nefarious. I mean, in some parts, I guess China is misunderstood in the sense that it's mainly the negative frame that gets applied to any sort of coverage of China, especially when it comes to education or the sort of, you know, soft power influence. If you look at especially Western discussions, they tend to use words like hijacking soft power, sharp power, influence operations, like very negative connotations. And from my research, I find that not all of it is in that darker domain. A lot of it is, you know, much more akin to public diplomacy apparatus or efforts that Western countries are also implementing. And how does China's media sharing sort of pact with Russia compare to what it does in other countries and other media spaces? Yeah, I don't know the, the exact agreement with their CSTV or all the details of it. I just know that they're sharing content with each other. That sounds to be similar to many other agreements uh, that they make. It's kind of content sharing agreements. And this also feeds into a larger strategy by Chinese media to localize. There's this constant stress of localization um, of cultural, but especially media initiatives. And this includes hiring local talent on the ground, but also it includes channeling their content through local media. So whatever media is you know, popular present in the other country. And sometimes it also includes buying those media. And then through that, you know, kind of investment, channeling a different narrative of China. In the case of Russia, it seems like there isn't an effort to buy out the media yet, but there is uh, an effort to create these agreements where they just give the stories, share stories that get translated or adjusted or kind of communicated through Russian media about China. That, that's a very common technique. When we're talking about Chinese international broadcasting, or foreign broadcasting, is it at all fair to compare it to sort of international broadcasting efforts, say, like RT or the BBC or RFERL? Like, you know, there, like, there are other countries, obviously, that have broadcasting divisions that are government-funded. You know, I've, certainly, you know, in the West, there's more of a sort of editorial firewall, at least that's the premise, at least, of these organizations, that they're not meant to be propaganda. That would be a term they don't like. Although their critics would probably accuse them of exactly that. But I mean, looking at what Chinese international broadcasting does and looking at what other countries in the West and other countries like Russia do, how would you compare them? First of all, I think more comparative work should be done on this. It hasn't been done in a lot of detail. There is one study that comes to mind by a professor at the University of Edinburgh, Kate Wright and her colleagues. They just published something on transnational kind of broadcasting and they did compare 
I think it was British and RT might have been part of the cases, but also China. And they found that a lot of these journalists have similar ways of kind of trying to shield themselves from this image of the so-called propagandists through terms like diplomacy, soft power, professionalism. They kind of try to use other more neutral terms to avoid this kind of connotation that I'm actually speaking for the state in some way. But of course, I think everybody who works for state-sponsored uh, media in some ways kind of faces the challenge of navigating the diplomatic mission of the, um, the government that's funding the media and the journalistic mission of just telling the right kind of objective professional story. So I think that challenge is, is, is common. How they tell the stories and how much freedom they have to tell different stories, that's something that varies a lot. So, for example, the strategy of RT seems to be to pre- present a destructive image of the West, especially the U.S. It's really to kind of deconstruct that um, notion of the West as some, something positive, but and present a really critical view through many Americans, uh, American voices who are you know, speaking on behalf of this critical public sphere. The, the case of China is different because they, they're all about telling the China story. So they're, they're kind of so far less interested in just completely distracting um, and fighting the West, at least through the official media, through broadcasting. Uh, it happens a bit on Twitter. Uh, but much more so kind of just like, well, let us tell the story of what China really is. This is how China works, which in some ways ends up producing a little bit more boring content. <laughs> so not everybody's as excited about it, whereas RT produces more sensational content. So that's the difference. And CCTV, CGTN and Xinhua, all those broadcasters, they are also very strictly controlled. So I think when it comes to censorship, control, regulation, you know, BBC and CGTN are not comparable. It's, it's much stricter. It's interesting because my understanding of RT's sort of beginnings is that they too intended to be more of a kind of positivity about Russia and that they then they found that there was so little interest in that kind of content that they then shifted essentially to being this kind of anti-Western sensationalism. Do you think, is it possible that Chinese foreign broadcasting would make that shift as well? Or is there just more interest in China and the West? And so they don't necessarily have to do that. I mean, you said that it's a little bit boring, but I would also imagine that more, at least in the United States, I would think more people would be interested in hearing about China. They care more about China because all their stuff comes from China, whereas Russia is sort of like, I, I don't know, what you know, what, whatever. On the one hand, maybe there's, there's some kind of more interest in China, but at the same time, I think we have to think about external propaganda or broadcasting as also in part serving domestic missions. So for example, in China, some of these people who are producing those very positive stories, they're not as keen about, I don't know, they don't care as much about what people think about them outside of China, but they care about what the boss thinks about them, right? So whoever reads them or happens to come across a story that's very positive, it's like, great, China is creating a positive image. And that counts as a good thing. So they might not necessarily have the kind of impetus to create something very exciting, but potentially destructive to China's image uh, or compromising. And instead to produce content that's maybe a little more neutral, more subtle, but it looks good for domestic kind of... Uh, evaluation, if that makes sense. So there's a lot of kind of bureaucracy that, that interferes with that. Um, the other thing is that there is some admiration for RT in the, at least in the academic circles in China. A lot of times I've heard that RT is doing really well. It has high ratings on YouTube. China, Chinese TV doesn't um, have any kind of, any, not nearly as competitive as, as, as RT. But at the same time, there's also kind of reluctance to adapt this approach. Some described RT as a troublemaker, as kind of this I don't know, destructive force, and we are, we're not like that. We have to tell our story as well. So there's kind of a sense of, I think, a dual sense, which sometimes I think happens like that in life, I guess, is admiration and resentment, kind of like a bit of maybe some, a bit of jealousy, but also a bit of kind of, oh, we don't want to be like them. We're, di- we're different.
is really very much a political tool. It's not entirely business. It's not entirely about entertainment. It's first and foremost about political control. That's Alexander Gabuyev, the chair of the Russia in the Asia Pacific program at the Carnegie Moscow Center, where he's also a senior fellow. He also says that the people working in Chinese foreign broadcasting have little incentive to acknowledge anything fundamentally wrong about their work in a place like Russia, especially when it concerns something as basic as failing to understand Russia's media realities. In Russia, uh, we inherited a media landscape from the 90s, where there was a lot of political competition in the country, where the country was, it was a messy, disorganized democracy with multiple power centers, including the political parties, the mafia, the oligarchs, so, so many different voices. And I think that this very mosaic and uh, eclectic media was streamlined during Putin's era for the last two decades, but it's still there in a very different context. But I think that you have so many more voices and uh, such a different school of training for, for journalists. And a uh, audience that's kind of used to freedom of expression. Repnikova agrees that Chinese broadcasting is over-bureaucratized, but she says it's wrong to argue that Beijing's propaganda efforts are rotten to the core. If anything, the Russian market is a special case. I think it's very tricky. But is it failing miserably? I think that's also, that's a very, you know, dramatic statement. I think it depends on where and what kind of media. I mean, in the developing worlds, there's a lot more interest in Chinese media uh, content and projects and Hiring opportunities to work for Chinese media can be quite lucrative and stable. So, say, Africa, Latin America, maybe even Central Asia, I haven't examined that, but they, there's a lot more, I think, potential. Russia, I think, is a much more sophisticated uh, media market in many ways. People that read a lot of Western media, they read some liberal critical media in Russian. So Chinese propagandists struggle to navigate Russia's more diverse media. But what else? I asked Kabuyev about the personnel shortages that supposedly hurt China's broadcasting efforts in Russia. One of the explanations offered is that it's really just a personnel shortage, is that they don't have enough kind of talented or trained journalists to convey what they want to say in a, in a proper Russian context. I think that the vision that they don't have well-trained personnel is a correct one, but it's a part of the answer. There is a, there is a culture where uh, the... The media outlets like the Xinhua and other the regional bureaus in Russia and Central Asia are really large in terms of people. And uh, that's partly explained by the fact that they're not only journalists, they're doing other interesting work here, but it's only part of the answer. So the interest and the strategic understanding that, yes, you need to increase Chinese discourse power and kind of bring out China's story here and convey the Chinese message to the local population is very much there because that's Eurasia, that's neighborhood, and that's the part where China believes it has good chances of expansion of its soft power. The problem is that I think in the U.S. or European context, China understands that society really plays a role in shaping policies and that talking to the government is not enough to convey your message. So you need to convince broader parts of the society. And that's why you need to invest into these resources and you need to put the best and brightest people on the spot. In Russia, I think the, the vision is still that, oh, that's former Soviet Union 
So why should we talk to the Russian society in a smart way when we basically can talk to the government using our government-to-government channels and then load propaganda on that? If that works for the first channel, why wouldn't that work for us? Problem with that approach is that the propaganda that they do really requires adaptation. We in Carnegie have done a small survey using one of the clips that they've done to promote the two sessions. And it's rapping in Russia, and it's kind of funny rapping even. But like about 500 people that we polled said, oh, that's so terrible. Like, we don't want to learn any, anything more about these two sessions. What, what the hell is that? So um, I think that it's really, in order to be successful, China really needs to calibrate and to, to, to be much more shrewd and smart on how it does PR. Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine there's any good way to do a PSA about the two sessions or anything like that. It just, I can't, it sounds, there's no one will ever care about that. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then what, what you need to do, you really need to, to PR some of the things that you were probably not very comfortable talking about. Like, look how great our social credit system is or face recognition apps. This is how many criminals we caught during a beer festival in Sindal. That's like, we exported that to Ecuador. The crime rate dropped 20% next year. So they have these stories that they can promote, but the way they reach out to the expert community here in Russia is very different from the way that they talk to experts in the U.S. because they know that these people have access, definitely not with the Trump administration, but under normal administrations, Mass Avenue has a voice. It's, it's not driving the policy, but it has access. It can shape some of the government policies. And then tomorrow... With the new administration, these guys might be in the government. So here, they understand that experts are less influential, but they still treat them as kind of vehicles to promote the talking points. And it's just easier to buy a couple of guys who are totally on Chinese payroll and deliver the messages that Chinese like instead of kind of trying to seduce and launch a charm offensive on people who are really kind of influential in the internal debate on China. And that's because they don't know who they are or because they don't know how to reach them? They, I, I, I don't think that they understand the need. Also, that changes with the political climate. So whoever now is critical of China or who says, yeah, like uh, strategic relationship with China is a must for Russia, but we also want to have a more balanced relationship with you guys. And we also definitely want to have a frank, open conversation about China, including a public conversation on uh, like op-ed pages of RPK or on Carnegie Ru or in Medusa, because we're a democracy after all. Like we are a free and open country with Vladimir Putin and United Russia, but we are much more open. And that's kind of our DNA. And it's not up for you to impose your culture of discussing foreign policy issues on us and like being critical of some of the aspects of China or being more elaborate of what's going on with a fight for power in the party is not being anti-China, it's not being critical, it's just being analytical since we are patriots of our country. So I think that has become very sensitive now in the political environment that Xi Jinping has created over the last five years in particular. So something that was totally normal for previous teams and where they say, okay, like why don't Russians discuss what's going on inside China as we discuss internally, 
what's going on, like how strong is Vladimir Putin, who's on the rise, who is like, how powerful is Sechin, how powerful is Chemisov. And that's very different. So people who publish something about kind of internal fight in the party are already a no-go zone for Chinese diplomats. And that's how they handicap themselves. When talking about China's publicity outreach abroad and its efforts to expand its influence and improve its image, one thing you can't leave out is the Belt and Road Initiative. So what is the Belt and Road Initiative? I asked Maria Repnikova to explain. Well, the great uh, the Belt and Road Initiative is China's grand plan to reconnect the world, so to speak, and to create a community of shared destiny. That's the phrase used by President Xi is the notion of, in their terms, is kind of creating this public good and kind of redefining what globalization is by creating physical connectivity through various infrastructure projects like ports and bridges and various trade routes, uh, but also cultural connectivity by facilitating more exchanges with journalists, with uh, cultural figures, with the youth. So there are all kinds of summits now that are taking place in China that are called Belt and Road Summits. There are youth Belt and Road Summits. There are all kinds of leadership summits. And there's just endless types of events that are not, for now are halted because of the pandemic, but usually take place regularly. And Central Asia is one of the, the key places. That's where the announcement, the main speech of President Xi was made in Kazakhstan. And it gets cited in all various presentations that Chinese leaders give about the Belt and Road Initiative. And it means increasing economic influence in the region where Russia used to be the primary actor. And, but it's not only economic, it's also more media influence. It's more opportunities for scholarships for Central Asian students to learn Chinese, to come to China, to do exchanges and kind of starting to compete at the level of public diplomacy and um, engagement with the broader public, not just the kind of the economic aspects of that engagement, but also just the societal media, um, cultural aspects. But for now, still, I think the cultural side is where Russia is stronger just because of the historic linkages, Russian language being spoken more widely, Russian media being very pre- prevalent there. So at that kind of layer, I think China still has um, some long ways to go, but it's entering and moving very quickly. I put the same question to Sergei Radchenka, a professor of international relations at Cardiff University's School of Law and Politics. He says Russia is basically doing its best to prevent Chinese expansion from interfering with what Russia stands to gain from closer ties with China. Well, the Russians are a little bit worried about that. And you could see that from the moment that that idea was launched first in 2013 by Xi Jinping. The Russians were wary about it because they thought, well, wait a second, will that challenge our uh, political presence, given that the Chinese have so much money? But on the other hand, the Russian government also was very careful in not making the Belt and Road Initiative a stumbling block to closer Sino-Russian cooperation. And they were the ones who actually were pushing for finding some some sort of way of reconciling the BRI and Russia's own ambitions for Central Asia. Are they not mutually exclusive? Well, in in economic sense, I think so. I mean, frankly, I think Russia stands to lose economically in terms of Central Asian economies being reoriented towards China. On the other hand, it's not like the Central Asians were necessarily, you know, are necessarily at a point where they will just jump to China and say, okay, China is our best friend, we'll forget about Russia. They have been trying to balance between China and Russia on their own. And there are also frictions between countries like, you know, Kyrgyzstan, for example, in China, Kazakhstan in China. There are all sorts of economic frictions as well. So I don't think we're at a point where the Chinese are just able to dominate Central Asia uh, at Russia's expense. 
Would you say that is Moscow being, I mean, are, are they taking a smart approach here? Because it sounds, it seems as though presumably they could be more confrontational, but that they've decided that they've kind of realized their limitations and that they're, they're, they're doing what they can. Yeah, they are trying to channel China, China's influence in a way that will not necessarily hurt Russia's interests. Because of course, Russia is where it could be, at least, uh, along, the, uh, along some of the channels of, of expanding Chinese economic influence, and the Russians could tap into this. So they, they have been trying to play a smart card here without raising too much fuss. We know that this is a concern, but it's a sort of a back burner concern. It's sort of a concern that's sort of in the background. It's always there. The Russians are concerned. They're thinking, well, the Chinese are kind of penetrating the region, but they're not alarmist about it. I don't think they're overly alarmist at this point. Alexander Gabuyev says the Belt and Road Initiative seems grander than it perhaps is in reality. And Russians know a thing or two about this, he says. Is Belt and Road something new? Not really. Like many parts of that, like Port of Badar and others, we've seen that before. It's just probably the magnitude of China is very different than it was a decade ago. And also, yeah, it's a signature foreign policy initiative of Xi Jinping. When dear Vladimir Vladimirovich talks about digitalization, every barbershop, every state-owned company, everybody in Russia who wants to have access to save money supports immediately. Same happens in China. Whenever the top leader has a grand vision, every barbershop in China supports that vision and definitely wants to become part of Belt and Road. That's why it's very ill-defined. It doesn't have a clear timeline. It doesn't have any criteria for success. So Russians get that because our leadership cultures are somewhat similar and are Soviet Brezhnev time in a way in nature. On symbolic level, Russia doesn't want to be in opposition to Belt and Road, but it also doesn't want to be a part of Belt and Road officially. So it says we are too proud to be part of something that China imposes on others. It's the job of Tajikistan's of this world, right? We're too big for that. And I'm sorry, but that's, that's, it's not how people officially frame that, but that's the way people think. I also talked about international hierarchies and power status with Sergei Radchenko, who explained that Russia simply doesn't factor into China's top-level thinking about the world order. In fact, they, they have a special kind of approach to their relations with the United States. And their, that relationship, you know, the Sino-American relationship is called a relationship between great powers. This is an official term, a relationship between great powers, a term that they do not actually apply towards Russia. So Russia is an important player for the Chinese, but they're, they're you know, decidedly in the second place. And so the expertise at the policy level at the propaganda level, at, at many other levels, is just simply not there. You say that, that China sees the world, or the, Ch the Chinese policymakers will often see the world as this kind of, it's, it, the fate will be decided by either China or the United States or by a partnership between the two. Is, is, the, is Chinese thinking that China represents one kind of statehood and that the United States is something different? Or, or do they view it more as just two competing powers that are essentially the same units? Like, is there a, when, when we talk about like the fate of the world, is it, is it, are there two different ways of life in conflict here, like in the Cold War? Or if it's not the US, it could be Iceland, if for whatever reason, like that was where the power was. Like, is, is, is it a way of life that, that's in conflict here? Or is it just two different countries? Well, you have two different paradigms here. If, if you are a realist, you 
will come to this and you would say, well, actually, that's just a clear case of, of a rising power trying to displace status quo power. And, and we don't need to talk about ideology. It has happened really since the Peloponnesian Wars. It has always happened like this. And we don't need to add ideology to the mix. Uh, or you can take a more you know, ideological approach and you can say, well, the Chinese represent a different way of life, perhaps. I would not go that way. When, when Pompeo recently in his speech at the Nixon Library talked about that, how the Chinese represent, you know, more how, they, how Xi Jinping believes in Marxism-Leninism, I thought that's just ridiculous. You know, this is ridiculous. It doesn't shape Chinese foreign policy in any conceivable way, frankly. That's just, you know, that's just an opinion of a historian who's spent years studying Chinese foreign policy. But there is certainly an approach, especially in the United States, of looking at China as some kind of an ideological foe. I, I think, frankly, it's a self-defeating approach. I don't think anybody benefits from suddenly saying, okay, Chinese, um, America's, you know, great future enemy. I don't think the Chinese themselves, frankly, see themselves as such. I don't think they see themselves as ideological enemies of the free world. That's, that's very much an American invention. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English-language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, we heard from a handful of experts about China's foreign broadcasting efforts in Russia and the propaganda partnership that's developed between Moscow and Beijing. Be sure to visit Medusa's website and read Alexei Kovalev's investigative report on this very subject. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa, our first English-language show, and I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Thanks for listening, and come back soon. <laughs>